As Karen comes to read this first scripture again, we've been dealing with pieces of the Psalms um, throughout this time of Lent. See where you can find the deepening space and the relationship that we might have with this God who continually seeks to love us. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a brute beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me with honor. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire other than you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to those who are false to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Every time we hear this story, and, and this is a, a little longer version, I mean, it's a, a fairly lengthy story, so I'm just going to have us stay seated, um, because I know it's hard to stand for any length of time on this. But uh, as every pastor asks you, as you hear the story, see if you can find where you would place yourself in the midst of this story. Karen? Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So the father divided the property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, A severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the elder son was in the field. 
and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. The slave replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then the son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead, and he has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of God. I'm going to move this painting over a little bit more toward the middle. I'll be just on the other side of the altar. Try not run over Alan. Just so at least most of us can see it. At least some part of it. We've come through Lent now. Uh, Again, the last kind of Sunday in Lent. And I want to remind us of a little bit where we've come, uh, particularly as we are going to explore this painting in just a few minutes. And Betty, I hope that what this may do is at least expand some of the understanding. It's a complex parable. It just is, as all of his are. But you remember, um, it's almost four and a half weeks ago now, that we came in and explored our own mortality as we came to Ash Wednesday. And Ashes were imposed on our foreheads as a reminder of of who we are and where we've come from and that God is so much greater than any of us. Then we talked about fear, about those things in our lives that seem to paralyze us at times, and yet if we allow God to help us, we can lean into those fears and help them define more fully what we could become beyond those fears. We talked about authorship and the fact that we continue to write our own stories, and yet as we engage in God, God becomes a part of that authorship. And we talked about power. Do you remember we talked about power and the fact that each one of us has significant power, but again, it's when it's combined with God that it becomes that much greater, and we find our place in the midst of creation. And last week, I talked about significance, the fact that we are significant, that Every one of us can play a significant role, but those can be in both a negative sense, as we talked about Robert Bales, and in a positive sense, as we look at the heroes in our lives and those people that are around us. As I kept thinking about this series, I kept thinking about the painting. And we're going to walk through that in just a second, but I want to to talk a little bit more about the story first. And to revisit the story, and then I'm going to come back and ask Tom to put up the second slide for the painting. Here is this young son. 
And this young son, again, not the firstborn, but the secondborn, who comes to his father and basically says, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. I want to have the inheritance that I would normally have if you were dead, once you were dead. I want it now. He doesn't ask the question. He makes the demand. Give me my share of the property. Why not just slap his father in the face? Because that's what this would be. But notice that the father never responds. There is no response there. He gives the property. And for this son, it's probably about a fifth of what the older son is going to get. And sometimes, depending on family and culture, it could be a third or even a seventh of the full share of the inheritance. So then, what does this young, immature person, young guy do? He heads out to the far country, we don't know where that is, and spends it, and I love the fact that Luke is so gentle with this language, because he could have gotten a whole lot more detailed about where this money went. But let's just say it was not spent wisely. Loose living is what one author talks about. And, and as happens, as people around you are not about what your needs are, but what theirs are, the money disappears very quickly, and the timing could not have been worse, because in the midst of this is a famine that has now gripped the whole land. Famines come fast, and when you're kind of agrarian in your culture, it, it, it takes its toll almost immediately. And people are in need, and this young man has nothing, and he is far away from home. Now, can you see the wry smile on the farmer? And I love, again, one of the language in one of the gospel writers who says, attaches himself, in one of the, uh, the translations, attaches himself to a farmer who immediately, can you imagine the face of this farmer as he knows this young man is Jewish and sends him out to do what? Feed the pigs. The most unhealthy, most dirty, absolute abhorrent to any Jew to spend any time with pigs. And finally, the young man is so desperate that what he finally finds is that he is now looking at the old corn cobs and other things that the pigs are eating because he's starving now to death. But he's also a master manipulator. And he has this realization, the aha moment sitting in the pigsty. And he says to himself, you know what my father's servants have? more than I have right now. I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father, and I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired slaves, one of your hired servants. Every one of you raise your hand when I ask you if you'd ever been in trouble. Now, many of us, when we get into trouble, we begin to do this amazing thing in our minds knowing that at some point we're going to have to go back to those persons that we have maybe harmed and have some kind of conversation with them. And I don't know about you, but, but many of us replay scenarios over and over in our minds as we're preparing for that. The son gets up, goes out, and he begins to rehearse his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer called. Worthy be called your son. Make me as one of your hired slaves. Every step on that journey home. He is repeating this over and over as his stomach is growling in much deeper ways. And finally, he comes to that bend in the road, the final bend in the road where once he makes that turn, he'll be able to see the house. 
deep breath, repeats the line one more time, visualizes and prepares himself for the fact that his father will probably beat him. It was done, particularly with something like this. Or at least disown him, at the very least. So he takes that step around the bend, and suddenly he sees the house, but to his amazement, his father is standing there looking. Then the father does the most unholy, unlikely thing that the father could probably possibly do. He grabs the bottom of his robe and hoists it up and begins to run. Now, can you imagine what is going through the son's mind at this point? Oh, my Lord, I'm gonna, he's going to kill me. And he's, he's so anxious to do it that he's now has no dignity whatsoever and is running toward me, and so you know he's standing there rigid and prepared. But what does the father do? Drops the robe and grabs him and embraces him, as we see. But still, because what we do is, because he's rehearsed this over and over, what he does is he begins the line. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer, and at that point, a gentle hand is laid over the son's mouth. And he's not able to finish the unworthiness part of the speech. But what the father does is so significant at this point. He calls to the servants and asks that they bring three things. Holy number. First, the robe. The robe to now cover up that filth that just permeates this young man. The ring, not a ring, the ring. This family signet ring that immediately once it's placed on his finger reclaims his position as a member of the family. And the shoes, that third piece, the shoes that identify him clearly that he is not a servant but is a member of that family. Robe, ring, shoes. And then, then, the father calls for the fatted calf. The fatted calf is that calf that has been treated royally by this family, preparing for the ultimate sacrifice that's going to be offered by that calf. And a feast always comes because that's such a significant time of reconciliation as that calf is offered to God to bring that relationship back into rightness. You seeing this? But then, then... There's the older son who has been there and been the steady force, the one who's done everything right, who hears the party, finally comes in, or is, doesn't come in, the father goes out. And notice that the father goes both times. doesn't wait for the sons to come to him. is constantly there ready to go. Goes out and again says to the son, you have always been with me. You've always been that consistent force. You still will. You still have all of this. We never know if the son really comes in and joins the party. Rembrandt had a thought. That brings us to the painting. Let's go to the second one. Rembrandt saw himself in each one of these figures. In the shadowy figures in the back, it looks as though there's a woman standing, which you can't really see up there, but as you come, 
you'll see a shadowy figure back in the upper left-hand corner. There's a, another figure at the very center of the painting that is somewhat dim. There's great debate in the painting about who that person is that is standing on the right. Most believe that that is the older brother, that that represents by both the father and that son wearing the red cape signifies the location, as does the elevation of his head. That this is that older brother, and if you'll notice, his hands are somewhat folded. They look like they're folded, but what you find if you look closer, and you'll have a chance at the end of worship to look at the painting, they're resting on what appears to be some kind of stick, decorative stick, which would be the family scepter. The identification of the family, and it was what they used if someone misbehaved to beat them. And his hands are sitting there on that scepter. So the question is, where do you find yourself in this painting? The person seated just to the right of, or really to the left of, the older son is probably a servant. And then you have the two dim figures. The one up in the upper left is often seen as the mother who has no role in this and is somewhere back in the darkness. Or, for Rembrandt, it was the representation of those in our lives who seek to continually pull us away from light and into darkness. The other thing about the painting that is so ingenious, and again, we're dealing with a master painter here who doesn't make mistakes. If you notice the hands of the Father... Look particularly first at the left hand, right on the shoulder of the sun. It is gnarled and very male-looking. Looks like a hands of a worker. Gnarled, uh, calloused. Knuckles are large. But then you look at the right hand placed against the back of the sun. And notice that the fingers are elongated. And if you look even more closely, as you go online maybe and look at this, you'll see that the fingernails even look almost manicured. The fingers and the hands of a woman. That somehow for Rembrandt, God played both roles in the lives. And then you look at the sun. For any Jewish male, the hair was to be long. As a gift of God, notice the hair on the sun in this painting. His head is shaved, and not beautifully. It is a sign of ultimate shame, almost irreconcilable shame. And yet here he is, in all his filth, being embraced by the father, judged by the brother, watched by those off in the distance. And again, now I ask you, where do you find yourself in this painting? And I think for many of us, we find ourselves in many of these locations, and we should. We need to be that humble Father who draws to ourselves those with whom we may be in conflict or those who have harmed us and re-embrace them with grace. Many of us see ourselves immediately as that son who has gone to the far country and maybe we're, our, we're still there. But we seek that reconciliation, but don't feel like we deserve it. Many of us are that older brother. And I've just had this experience with my older brother of trying not to be in judgment. But we are so often in that role, and some of us are still in that dim darkness. But here's the deal, friends. 
what this story is all about. The whole purpose of this story is to create a new normal for us and that God is continually seeking in us to create a new normal and it is a new normal of grace. The whole purpose of Lent is to help us go deeper and continue to reignite our souls and understand our relationship with God represented as the Father in this painting and accept that grace that is offered to us and offer that grace to others, this reciprocating nature of faith and love. The whole purpose of Lent is to create opportunities for a new normal. How's that gone for you? Have you taken that on? You got more opportunities. And by the way, it doesn't end because of the resurrection on Easter morning. I think for many of us, this is a lifelong process. But remember, this story is so powerful, particularly in this, as represented in this painting. Notice this is a moment in time, and this painting is silent. Meaning, no one's talking. It, it is silence locked into a tapestry, into a canvas, into a painting. And it's in the silence that we often find the deepening sense of who we are. Henry Nouwen wrote this beautiful book called Return of the Prodigal Son. And I want to just encourage you to pick that up and read it. It is a story of homecoming, the opportunity that God continually places before us of coming home again into those loving arms. No matter how you see God. But Lent isn't over, nor is your life in faith. So as we wrap all this up, where do you see yourself in this painting. And as you ponder that, will you pray with me? God, you are the source of all things. The source of love, the source of compassion, the source of forgiveness and grace. We come into this place so often as those who feel lost knowing what our history is and comparing it to others, believing that somehow we fall short. And yet you continually seek to embrace us and say to each one of us, as Nowen so poignantly stated in his book, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. I ask that you help each of us hear those words in our own souls today. It does not mean that we're perfect, but it does mean that we are embraced by you and that you seek to have a home in each of us. Help us to open ourselves and allow you to dwell in us as children of yours. All this we ask in the one who did it better than anyone
Jesus Christ. Amen.